Let's read that first section of our passage today. We are in the book of Philippians, Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Amen. Last Sunday, I talked about what it means to be a saint who is united to Christ, set apart for his good works in a local church, like in Philippi. It is not so much about your moral perfection that gets you to the level of being a saint, like in a Catholic teaching, but it is Christ's perfection. The fact that you are united to that perfect Christ gets you to that place. And basically, so we are all saints in Christ Jesus. And I've told you as we have sung that song, how are we supposed to live as Christ saints in this world? And I've told you, one thing that you could do is to be reminded of the fact that you are loved by God in this world. And I hope and trust that uh, was a great encouragement to all of you. So I continue with that thought. How are we supposed to live in this world as His saint? How are we supposed to obey Christ's commands? As you know from Matthew, let me read a few famous verses for you. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. However you want to translate and understand those verses, it involves certain level of self-denial. We simply say, that is just too much for me. And as I was preparing for this message, some of the video clips that I've seen came to my mind. Have you seen uh, how the lions or the wolves, they hunt their prey? Have you seen the eyes of a gazelle or impala who is now being killed or being eaten by these powerful animals? They cannot resist. They cannot, they cannot do anything. The male lions, they don't hunt as you know. It is the ladies. They go out and hunt by the packs. Lions, they have teeth and the paws, and they have the speed, at least initially. And I've seen from the videos, once that animal prey falls on the ground, trips and falls on the ground, that's it. 
because these animals, these heavy lions and lionesses, they will, they will just sit on them. And usually these lionesses, they will kill the animal before they will consume them. But I don't know if you have seen the hyenas. Not the hyenas from the Lion King movie, but actual clips of them hunting. They are the most wicked, the most deviant creatures uh, from hell. They have no ethics. We have little children sitting here, so I am not going to describe how they hunt or how they eat the animals. One thing I've learned over these uh, clips is that when you see these animals in Africa, they roam around, they sit or sleep. They are doing that because they ate. For them, probably, the life would be eat or be eaten. They're not enjoying the scenery or, or enjoying their lives. I've seen the documentary on these hyenas. All puppies are cute. And these hyena puppies, are, they have black uh, fars. They're cute. But they have this underground tunnel that they dig and they put their puppies in. And after weeks and probably a few months, they come out of that den, underground den. And what camera uh, was doing, they, they show us, showed us the inside, what they were doing. When they are born, these hyena puppies, they sit around. They are blind. They are sitting in the tunnels and they are just, you know, trying to survive. But I've learned they do something that is very striking. As soon as they, they open their eyes and they are able to move around underground, they practice what is known as fratricide. You know what that is, is that when they look around their siblings, you look at your brother or sister, they will kill them. So after weeks and months when these puppies, hyena puppies, come out of the den, whoever would come out, they are the survivors or killers. Very striking. And unlike the lions, who would smother them, the prey's first, these hyenas do not have the uh, big jaws to, to choke them. So they will eat um, them alive, the victims, the prey, they are alive. They are a matriarchal society, the hyenas. They have ladies in hierarchy, not alpha male, but female. And they raise their puppies together. They hunt together. They feed their puppies together. But one thing that was also surprising and surprisingly wicked, at least in my perspective, was that, you know, lions, alpha males, when they get old, they are challenged by the younger males and they, they walk away. All the, all the alpha males, they just, just simply walk away. They wander off into the wilderness and they will die by themselves. 
But these hyenas, what they will do is, even though they are a village people, if they hunt and somebody uh, breaks his or her leg, they will come and eat you. They do not have any honor, any respect. Oh, she was my auntie who raised me. There's no such thing. As soon as they sense the weakness, they will come and eat you. There's no brotherhood, there's no sisterhood, as I told you, from the den, when they're babies, they start killing each other and eat each other. There's no love, then there's no mercy. I mean, if I ask one of the ladies in that pack, why are you like that? Why are you so wicked? Probably the lady will say to me, what do you mean? I am just being me, hyena. I'm just hyena. And uh, that's, that's what came to my mind. The world is like that. Christians, as we live in this world, at least the serious Christians, born-again Christians, we struggle because we want to play by the rules, God's rules. We are supposed to love our enemies, go extra mile, turn the other cheek, as Christ commanded. So we want to do that, but the world is full of hyenas. If you turn the other cheek, they will not appreciate that, and they'll slap that too. And this struggle is real. And unless we think about this, many of us will simply say to me, back to reality. I understand the teaching is good and and, and high moral standards that I understand. But reality is not that simple, it's not that easy, and our struggle is real. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 10? Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's the truth. It's like we are walking in the savannah and we meet hyenas. If Jesus himself says that we are sheep in the midst of wolves, I mean, what are we supposed to do? 10.22, Matthew 10.22 You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. That's what it means to be a Christian and a saint in this world. Picture is not rosy, it's not bright. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to be? If you would look at the next verse that I've given you, as I've told you a couple of weeks ago, that I will go back and forth in Philippians. And Philippians really is full of famous verses. If you have heard about any Bible verse, you probably have heard from Philippians. And Philippians 4.6 has this famous verse on prayer. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but 
in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God that's how sheep fights in this world what does the Bible say It does not simply say, do not be anxious, don't worry, and be happy. Though we can. It does not say, don't worry, and instead, rejoice. If you pick up any commentary on Philippians, they will all say it is an epistle of joy. The main theme is joy. But it doesn't say, don't worry, do not be anxious, And rejoice, it does not say, though we should. It does not say, don't worry, because God is in control. Though He is, it does not say. It says, but pray. Therefore, the posture of Jesus' saint is to pray. In the midst of the wolves, in the midst of the hyenas, no ethics, no rules. They just want want to come and eat us alive. Really, how are we going to defend ourselves? Is there anything that we could do? Are we the victims always, all the time? Do not resist? Are we supposed to simply die? I want to give you one idea. How can we not only survive? We are not victims. The first century Christians in Philippi, they were the minorities in that town, in Roman colony. And God is saying through Paul to them in Philippi to pray. What is prayer against 100,000 strong pagans in a Roman colony? It's not a Jewish town who who have some understanding of one true living God of the Old Testament. These are straight up pagans. To them, God says, pray. For us living in this world, God says, pray. So I'm going to speak on this verse, not fully, but few points. Follow this verse with me carefully. Be anxious for nothing. What's the first word that you encounter? But in what? Everything. We'll stop. That's my first point. Everything here, the word is, if you read any kind of every or all in the New Testament, that's the word. It basically means all in collective sense, everything in an individual sense. Every kind of, all sorts of, any and every, full, greatest, all, each, every, all, the whole universe. Basically, this all, everything means everything under heaven. So, I will say this based upon this. There is not an issue that will be despised when you bring that matter to God in prayer as His child. 
We are not to live by the bread alone, but Jesus also taught us to pray for our daily bread. In everything, brothers and sisters, that means really everything that bothers you. Everything under heaven, you could bring it to our God. God will not say, don't bring that kind of stuff to me. That's childish request. He will not say. In my conversation with my own daughter, I found something interesting. If I ask you, what are you worrying about these days? Some of you will say, finance or my health, my parents. Struggling, all sorts of that kind of stuff. But even young children, they have their own struggles. And can you imagine, this is a quiz, what a six, seven-year-old daughter of mine, she's worrying about? Her wiggly tooth. That's what they are talking about in the playground. When they huddle together with her friends, during break time. You know what six or seven year old child, children, they will talk about? You know what they're worrying about? How the wiggly tooth is hurting them. And how am I going to pull it out? Would God despise that? I say no. Because it said in everything. If we hear that, we may laugh at that. It's not an issue, but probably it is for her. What is your problem? Somehow we have this sense that how we are to bring to God something noble, something that is so high, or we should, but it does not mean God is going to reject or despise the things that you may bring to his attention, because Bible says, but in everything, everything under heaven. That's good news. The next section, I'm skipping supplication with thanksgiving. But the last phrase in verse 6, what does it say? Let your requests be made known to God. Pause right there and let me tell you what came to my mind as I was thinking about this verse. Carrying over from what I was just saying. It says, let your request. Your here is plural you, nonetheless, but it is personal. God is asking seven-year-old daughter to bring her request. She doesn't have to pray the prayer of four-year-old men. It is not her mom's, not daddy's, not pastor's, not the church's, but let your personal request. That's right. Kingdom of God is big and we should be praying for His kingdom and His righteousness. But you are included in His kingdom. And in this verse, God is saying to His saints in Philippi, let your request, yours, bring your request 
to me. I will pray with my request, and you could pray with your own request. Six-year-old will bring his or her own request at their level, and God will still hear it, hear their prayer request. Also, it says, let your requests Really, when I looked it up, it only had one definition. Really, a request. Nothing else to it. Let your request... I thought about that. Not a command to God or a threat to God. You better do this. Not a wish. Not a sigh. Not bringing your emotions to God. But a request. Yes, there are times when we simply groan. We cannot express our thoughts. We don't know the will of God and whatnot. But this word was very special to me. Let your request. What is request? It's asking for something. If I am going to make my request, what am I going to do? I'm going to think about my request. There is a self-conscious effort on my part forming the content of that request. By doing that, you are going to get help from the divine revelation. As we have read from Westminster Confession, we are not going to ask God something unlawful. We are being informed by all these teachings from the Bible. But it is a request. It is whose request? Your request. Oftentimes, think about your own prayer life or prayer, how you pray. You realize you spend so much time and energy looking for God's will in your prayer. By doing so, I realize, we put on ourselves unbearable burden, constantly doubting our prayers, because oftentimes, should I, should I not? What is your will, God? And most of the times, the, the will of God is hidden from us. So what we are doing is really asking, what is your will? And I would say, how am I supposed to find out His will? Perfect will. We can't. Most of the times we can't. But this verse is saying, let your request, how human that is. I don't have to really find out what His perfect divine will is. You can't. I am informed by the teaching of God's word in general. Revealed will of God. But the hidden will of God I will never find. You will never find unless you believe in that audible voice speaking God theology. So let your request. I know my request. I could form my own request. You could form your own request. Seven-year-old girl could form her own request. How freeing this really is for you and me. 
Don't try to get it right 100%. Wondering, doubting, second-guessing what His will is. Think about that. Let your request. Very simple. What's your request? Remember how Nebuchadnezzar, he had a dream. You know, how he pulled all these smart people, doctors in his kingdom, and what did he say? He didn't tell them his dream and tell me the interpretation of it. What did he say? Tell me my dream first and then give me the interpretation. Then I will trust your interpretation. He's a smart man. God is not like that. You tell my will. (laughs) You find out my will and you pray according to my will, then I will grant your wishes. That's how often we think about it. And it is self-defeating because we cannot find that out. Let your requests. The next one is this. What, What does it say? Let your requests be made known to God. I was walking the dog as I was thinking about this verse, and I thought, oh, that's odd. Let your request be made known to God. God knows everything. It's absurd. This verse really is contradictory. How can you let God know something? Let your request be made known to God. God is omniscient. God knows all things past, present, and future. And, but this Bible verse is saying, let your request be made known to that God. Those of us who stand in this Reformed tradition, we affirm not only that God knows all things, but also that God had decreed all things from all eternity He has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. His immutable will. So, when we pray, I find ourselves doing this. I mean, God knows everything. And what's going to happen, God has ordained from all eternity. So, what's the point? We don't want to see the change inside of God. God's will is one and immutable, the simplicity of God. We affirm that. Maybe in our own minds there are contradictions, but in the mind of God there is not. Let your requests be made known to God. It's a command. Though God knows everything, though God has ordained everything, yet the same God tells us in everything with thanksgiving, let your requests, your requests, not my will, not my hidden will, but your requests be known to God. This is a wonderful verse. This really is a gospel news regarding your prayer life. Now, time to turn to the reference. I was thinking about the saint. 
I didn't want us to think about ourselves simply as victims, just trying to run away from the hyenas. We are not. We are, the, we are more than conquerors in the world for the gospel of Christ. So I thought about the weapon, and it's either the word or the prayer, or Ephesians 6, the armor of God. But Philippians talk about, we'll talk about prayer as I am explaining only verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6. But then a couple of passages came to my mind. Something that I've read a couple of months ago in my own reading. It was one of those readings that I've read and I thought about it. I thought, hmm, but I put it outside because I couldn't dwell upon it for a long time. But this week, this passage came to my mind. So I went back and I saw it and I thought this is a great illustration of Philippians chapter 4. Verse 6. The man's name is Hezekiah. He is one of the good kings in southern Judah. And, and I am not going to uh, give you all kinds of backgrounds. He is rather a famous figure. And he is talked about in Second Kings and Second Chronicles. But also in Isaiah. And I am bringing you that Isaiah. In the middle of the book of Isaiah, his story is stuck right in between. And I am bringing you to attention how he faced the dangers in his own lifetime. First one is the external enemy, the physical external enemies. Now, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, San Kerib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Assyria is by this time an empire. And now, as you have read, fortified cities, these are the military cities of Judah, they have lost. The last one is Jerusalem. So they came up. And the king of Assyria sent his servant, Rapsaki, from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah, with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of upper pool on the highway of the fullest field. Jump to verse 10. This is Rapsaki speaking. This is a very famous scene. Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? He's taunting them. The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. This is king of Assyria speaking through Rapsake. So you see how the predestination or the decree kind of playing in in this verse then? I say, you see why? You know the reason why I'm here is because you God allowed it to happen. This is what Rapsake is saying. Chapter 37. Isaiah 37. And when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shibna, the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, their famous Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection, for, the ch for children have come to birth, 
And there is no strength to deliver. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rapsakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. few verses down, verse 14. Then Hezekiah, see how well, what he does. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And what does he do? Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying. What is Hezekiah's prayer against strong army? O Lord of hosts. The God of Israel who is enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to all the words of Sennacherib who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands. And have cast their gods into the fire for they were not gods. But the work of man's hands, wood and stone, so they have destroyed them now. O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Let your request be made known to God. This is, this is what he's doing. He doesn't say... Well, I know it was, you, it was your will to send Santa Carib to me and chastise Judah because of our sins. He doesn't say. He simply says, Oh Lord our God, deliver us. He's not trying to look for God. What is your will? Santa Carib is right outside the door. Is your will to destroy us or not? He, like a child, he prays to God, deliver us from his hand. So that the whole world will know that you alone are God. How simple is that? Verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And you've got to underline this. Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria... This is what the word of the Lord has spoken against him. What did he say? Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Did God know that Sennacherib was there? Or well, God saw it, obviously. God knew it. In one sense, God decreed it. But here, this is given to us to encourage us. King went up into the house of the Lord to pray. If you are the commander of Judah, what would you say? King, this is not time to pray. Your prayers are not going to save us. We don't have army. We have to stage this and that. What's the better strategy? What, is, what, what are you supposed to do? 
that king went to the house of the Lord and prayed. Simple request, deliver us. And God says, because you have prayed to me. Verse 35, verse 36. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, the Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, killed him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Ararat, and their Sarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. Hezekiah is sheep. Sennacherib is hyena or the wolf. What can he do? Well, he prayed. And it is very important that you understand today Philippians 4, 6. In everything, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Hezekiah did exactly that. And God says, because you have prayed, I am answering you. In other words, if he didn't pray, I don't know. That you may understand. Jerusalem, the city of God, city of David is in danger. So God should come and God should help. We understand. But now there is the second par- passage, paragraph that I want you to see. A couple of months ago, while I was reading it, Obviously, I've read it. Probably you have too. But something very odd caught my attention. The, this sector, Santa Carib, we understand. A lot is at stake. But look at verse, chapter 38, verse 1. Right after that, Esar Haddon becomes the king. Listen to this. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. We don't know really what caused it? Why? We just don't know at this, in this passage. And who comes? Isaiah. Yes, that famous Isaiah. Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Now, what would you do? This is Isaiah speaking. Not an unknown prophet of God, but that Isaiah, Ben Amos. He says, set your house in order, for you shall die, not that, and not live, twice. Just to make sure he understood. You shall die and not live, twice. Confirmation. God's will has been delivered to Hezekiah. What would you do? 
What would you do if you're a mature Christian man, or at that time, believer of God? What would you do? Is he joking? If I were him, I would set my house in order. Shouldn't you obey Isaiah? Shouldn't you obey God? Well, God said it. Who am I to question that? What would Hezekiah do? He will do what he will do. He has been doing. Hezekiah will do what Hezekiah has been doing. Look at verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, Yahweh, I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. I remember thinking, Ah, that's not a man thing to do. God told you that you are going to die and you do not accept your fate. Not only that, you cry and you wept bitterly like a kid. What does God say? Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have, what? Heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord. And the Lord will do this thing that he has has spoken. Behold, I will cause the shadow of the stairway which has gone down with the sun on the stairway of Ahaz to go back 10 steps. So the sun's shadow went back 10 steps on the stairway on which it had gone down. Now back to back, chapter 37, 38, 37 again, city is at stake, I understand. But what is the point of 38? What is the point of, what is the point of verse 1 through 7? <laughs> I couldn't understand. Is this some kind of joke? Uh, Isaiah comes and you are going to die. And he prays and says, oh, I will add 15 more years. I, I really, so I put that, I set it, set it aside. But when I was thinking about Philippians 4, 6, it made sense to me. Hezekiah, whatever he is, he has childlike faith and response. When God says you are going to die and not live, he does not say, is it really your will? Am I praying according to God's will? God just said I'm going to die. That's his will, revealed will. He doesn't do that. He simply did what? He made his request be made known to God. And twice, chapter 37, 38, I believe this really explains these two incidents that that they, they explain what Philippians 4, 6 is talking about. He doesn't want to die, so he cries before the Lord. Sheep cannot 
or should not fight back. We do not have sharp teeth. We do not have strength like hyenas. But if I could say one thing to the saints of Christ, that the sheep, Christ's sheep, we could, we can pray. We may not be able to fight back against these strong enemies, but our shepherd can. Let us not overcomplicate things when it comes to prayer. What is a man's prayer against 200,000 strong army right outside of the gate? What is prayer? What is your view of prayer? What is prayer by the handful saints in Philippi? We don't know who's who in that congregation. Probably not many were powerful people. What could they do in Philippi? Ten-year-old church plant. What can they do? What could Hezekiah do? What could a sheep do? That's right. Maybe Hezekiah's life story is telling us not to accept everything as our fate. Yes, we believe in the sovereignty of God. Our privilege as God's children. Let us not ignore that by not praying. If prayer is really what the Bible says it is, talking to our Father and enlisting Him on my side. And Hezekiah's story is there to encourage us to do exactly that and not to go into that circle. If God has willed it, this wouldn't happen, so what's the point of praying? I believe one of the Life's regrets will be for us as Christians is that at the end of our lifetime, we probably will regret that we haven't prayed enough. That we have accepted too much as our fate or fates. We have ignored our status as God's children and not prayed. And our faith was too small to request anything that will shape and bend the course of history. Yes, God has decreed everything. But don't you know and can't you see from Hezekiah's story? It pleased God to use Hezekiah's prayer to achieve his end. It's not a phantom prayer. It is real prayer. So in one sense, our prayer is much more than what we think it to be. Simply offering my wish. Or forever trying to find His will that we cannot find. Yes, be informed by the Word of God. But, good news, the weapon that God has given us. 
for his saints to live in this fallen world is to be victorious by in everything with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to all-knowing God. And I'm going to use Hezekiah as I pray to God, and you should too. God, you, you know what you've done for Hezekiah. And you need to do that for me. With that boldness and simplicity, I pray that you will invade that throne of grace, that God will give you your heart's desires. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.